0: Before we begin, just to let you guys know, our logo artwork was designed by Nickel Anarchy, and music by Taylor Paisley French. Warning: This podcast does contain spoilers for the Ryodan Verse series. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Best Damn Camp—a road and race read. Oh, I can't even say the word anymore. Read along and analysis this podcast that sets out to read all the books by Rick Riordan in timeline order. I'm your host, Fran, and welcome to the show. I will preface this with the fact that I think I'm actually coming down with a cold or something—just a cold, nothing, n- nothing else. Um, so I'm a little bit bunged up. So if I sound a little bit weird, it's either that I am just really British, and people just can't understand me, or it's the fact that I have a cold. Um, So, you know, just a little warning in case I sound a little bit, well, stranger than normal. Um, So, yeah, (laughs) just putting that out there before um, any feedback comes about that. Um... I do want to thank people firstly as well and all the fantastic Percy Jackson podcasters. See brain, Return to Camp Halfblood, Blood Report, Into the Rhyldenverse, and the guys from the since-retired Floor 600 and also now retired Radio Camp Halfblood. Um, just everyone from the podcasts have just been lovely and I really just appreciate their support um, with the harassment that I've been receiving as of Late, so I uh, just want to thank you guys so much for your support. And if my listeners here aren't already checking out their podcast go check them out, they are phenomenal. Um, but yes, anyway, sorry, let us let us continue. Um, <laughs> so today we are continuing and fin well, not finishing the timeline, no, we're continuing our timeline journey but finishing with the Battle of the Labyrinth, chapter 19, the Council Gets Cloven. And chapter 20, my birthday party takes a dark turn. As always, I've got my points to focus on, so today we've got character story and finales. And of course, just generally what I thought of it. But to begin, here's the synopsis. Our hero's journey is slowly and quickly wrapped up. Small grieving, another environmental message, and friendship turmoil. And that's only just the beginning. When a birthday party is overwhelmed with information. We wonder, what is going to happen next? And that's pretty much the synopsis for these two chapters. It's not the best synopsis, but quite a lot happened. So, oh god, sorry I didn't mean to hear you on it that. <laughs> um. Anyway, let's just get right in. Let's start with the fabulous chapter 19 the council gets cloven now obviously i know what happens in this chapter i've read it so many times but i still don't understand the title of this chapter it makes no sense to me i really don't so can someone let me know why it's called the council gets cloven it doesn't what it doesn't make any sense anyway let's just dive into this is the overview for chapter 19 Our heroes bury those they have lost and mourn. A decision for Grover is made. Dionysus arrives and the tides change. The word of Pan is to be shared by Grover, now grown, and he will organise the protection of the wild. As Tyson says goodbye to his friend, Percy and Nico also say goodbye, for now. Dionysus has some wisdom for our boy. Small things matter. Why not feel like that could also be an insult at the same time? <laughs> oh, dear. Anyway, right. Sorry, that was um for older audiences. <laughs> My bad, guys. I've spent too much time with the other Percy Jackson podcasters. I think other than myself and Half-Blood Report, everyone else's podcasts are not particularly PG, shall we say. Um, and they're influencing me a lot, so I think my most recent episodes I've done, admittedly, it was secondhand anger at everything that was going on in my life. But I'm hoping that I can continue to call myself a PG podcast because I like to be available to all. Um, but yeah, sorry, I I sh- I shan't do it again. <laughs> well, we'll see. Anyway, so what I'm going to be looking at for chapter nineteen, particularly, is story and characters. Now the thing that I want to say particularly about the story is that, well for this chapter in particular, is that it does incompat. You guys may be shocked, but I quite enjoyed a lot of this chapter. I know. Amazing. It's so unheard of for me. Um, It's just the fact that it summarises and wraps up quite a lot of the the main plot elements of this book. Helps kind of make it feel more finalized um and then just the elements that we do get in this i do i do enjoy such as uh the nico and percy uh interaction but although particularly i i think the dionysus and percy element was the better part of this chapter because of the message that we get from dionysus as well as his introduction going into um the council and the fact that we, and i'll get to that when we talk about characters but the fact that we see an emotional side of of the gods about losing a child um I, I thought was really beneficial so I, I really I applaud the chapter for this because it's just something that we haven't really seen um the only thing is and obviously because I've got to get to complaints at some point the only complaint I have for this is that the this is the chapter after the battle and like I said before I was annoyed about the fact that the, <laughs> the battle of the labyrinth doesn't really have an actual battle it's just it's nine pages it's half a chapter well less than half a chapter um yeah and people have died so but we don't really feel it so we know people have died but we also know that Percy doesn't really know anything about them he just he he knows their names um one of them he didn't even know the name of until he died and he feels you know angry so, and, like, sad at that fact that he, he's he been at this camp for three years and he never knew this kid's name. And this was, um, Ca- uh, is it Cassius? Uh, Caster, sorry. Castor's death, who was the son of uh, Dionysus. Um But I think this is the thing that got me. It's half a page. The mourning and the burial shroud and, the, you know, the funerals of these children that have died And it's half a... It's not even half a page. It's a paragraph. That's how long we focus on the actual, you know, permanent scars of this battle. And it's a paragraph of an aftermath. That's all we get. It should have had more of an impact. Children are dead. Children have been killed. And it's a paragraph's worth of... You know, oh, we did the shroud, you know, these are the people that I know who died. It's although, it seems like only three people died, which like, in the nicest way, feels a bit unrealistic. With the amount of enemies that were there, the amount of war that was happening, and how little campers there were in general. It feels really unrealistic that it seems like only three kids died. And it sounds morbid, but I feel like it, it needed that bigger of an impact. Considering the fact that this was the battle that this whole book was leading up to. It should have had more of an impact. Um, But as a whole, this is just something I've noticed in these books. Like, the loss of life isn't focused on enough for us to feel that loss and actually care. And this is the thing that I've talked about, like, with the whole Bianca... Like, the only death so far that we, as an audience, have cared about is Zoe Nightshade. Because that one elongates her death. It's not that she dies suddenly... Her death is elongated enough that we actually witness her death. The other cases where they've died, it's been tragic. But we just don't focus on it, so we don't actually care. Like we didn't. The way the story is written is we're devastated, or we're meant to feel devastated about Bianca, but she wasn't developed as a character well enough, and then we don't actually see the aftermath of her death. We just know that everyone's sad, and that's it. And that's the same here. We've had three children die. And only Dionysus is the one that we've seen a little bit of, like, an emotional reaction from the loss of one of the kids. The, and, it, and this is the thing for me. So many people will use the fact, oh, but it's a middle grade book, it's for, it's for kids, you know. And I'm like, just because it's middle grade doesn't mean we shouldn't feel something about loss. Have, having the, the fact that we have death in this book, we need to look at the aftermath how to cope with it what it means understand the loss of life kids aren't dumb and it feels like the fact that we don't focus on it and it's brushed over so quickly a paragraph on the loss of life and it's not even about the loss of life it's just like we had their funerals that's it like this will benefit kids to help them understand loss But it'll also show Percy's growth. The fact that he's, the whole thing is that it doesn't seem like Percy seems to understand the weight of what is happening in the world because he's not actually focusing on these losses. We actually have a scene where he's like, he's he's happy at one point. It's like you know, me and my friends, we survived. You know, we're having campfire, sing along, we're eating, we're enjoying ourselves. I mean, it's the same day i'm pretty sure it's the same day maybe maybe the day after it's been two days at max since people were murdered <laughs> in a battle and you're like you don't seem to be affected by it the only thing that shows the sign that people were affected by it is that everyone avoids zeus's fist when they're do- like they, they're go back to play and capture the flag and i'm like but just avoid Zeus's fist. Like It just doesn't feel like there's any weight behind the loss of these children. And so, to me, it just feels like it's insulting child audiences, because kids can understand death, but glossing over it is just... It's like... What's the word? You know, like, how people talk down to kids, and like, oh, they really... Like, that rubbish that people talk about, it's like, oh, we can't have queer couples and queer characters and media because children won't understand I'm like well firstly it's bollocks but like that's the sort of thing here it's like, oh we can't show death because children won't understand it and they'll ask a lot of questions I'm like well Johnny, that's just an opportunity to teach children but also having it there and kind of diving into it a little bit more like we've just had kids die so they're going to be wondering about it but then the fact that we don't then talk about experience the loss and mourning of losing these kids means it's then brushed over so then people aren't experiencing or understanding loss which is something that like I don't know I don't know if I'm getting off topic here anyway I just a paragraph is not enough to actually explore the earth this is meant to be the biggest battle that they've ever had It's meant to have really affected people and it's meant to be a horrific experience, but we don't get any of that. Literally within a couple of pages, people are laughing, people are going back to playing games and all these sort of things. Like it feels like nothing happened, which it shouldn't have that. It should be something that is weighing on the people in this camp. They have lost people. Their camp has been affected. The sanctity of their camp has gone because people came in and tried to destroy it and nearly succeeded but it just the weight of that just disappears within two pages well a couple more pages four pages I'll say so it just feels a bit uh, if you get what I mean um, but I think the thing is that like well this is the whole thing for the chapter the chapter itself it had its good moments like the Nico and Dionysus Followed by Grover. I think the Grover aspect was really interesting, although I feel like it should have happened a little bit later. Um, I also think Grover disappears from this story. Like, we have this moment where he's, like, you know, he's guiding people where to go to help protect the wild, and then we don't see him again. (laughs) This is the last moment we see him in this book. Um, But that the morning and the aftermath should have been the bigger focus in this chapter, followed by Grover and Diagnosis and a little bit of Nico. Though, honestly, I would cut this down just a little bit and not actually have him and Percy talk. Have it that Percy notices that Nico has disappeared. Because then what happens later, and obviously I'll get to that, that would feel more impactful. But I'll get into, just to kind of move on from death, (laughs) let's get into characters. And the one I want to to, to talk about particularly is Dionysus. We need more moments with the gods like this to help understand their character, especially in the fact that we see how upset Mr. D is about Castor's death. A little focus on both sides. So this is the whole thing. The whole element of the gods is the fact... And this is the big story narrative element as well. We don't really get much about the larger and smaller picture of why the demigods are split on who to join, the gods or the titans. So moments like this with Mr. D showing that he, even though he hides it, he does care about his children. He does in a sense care about demigods in some form. But then also showing other gods who have like the opposite, you know, like the whole thing with Apollo in um, Tyrant's Curse. Like the only reason he was invested in that quest was because he wanted to save his sister. He didn't care about Annabeth. That was a good example that wasn't, you know, talked about in Tyrant's Curse. And I had my thoughts about that as well. But Showing both the good and bad sides of these gods in this way would help us understand, ah, this god is a bit of a reason as to why some demigods join the titans. And then you see another god who doesn't the good, and you're like, ah, well, this is an example as to why some demigods are sticking with the gods. Like, just a little focus on both sides, Like, just like, like how useless they are, but also the fact that sometimes they really do care about their children about the demigods. Would help us understand what this war is about because for the demigods this war means something else entirely obviously for Cronus it's all about just overthrowing the gods but for the demigods it's a little bit more personal yeah it is also about overthrowing the gods but it's the reason why they're doing it is because they feel that they were abandoned by them so showing both sides of gods who really do abandon the demigods and don't care about them and then cases like Mr D here where even though he's being an ass for most of the of the books he does actually care in some way i think doing that would really help us understand like luke's motivation like ethan's motivation and i think that's it because chris has come back to our side now oh god i'm annoyed about the cliss clarissa and chris moment um also just because like Well, Chris doesn't really get any character development at all. He could have had, he really could have had some great character development, but he doesn't really get that. He just ends up just being like Clarissa's, not Clarissa's, Clarissa's really random love interest. And also, what's the point of just sidetracking Clarissa's character just for a love interest? Like, I'll talk about this when we get to the last Olympia. That's the only, One of the biggest complaints I have about The Last of and we'll get to that. But anyway, let us move on to the next and final chapter for the Battle of the Labyrinth. Chapter 20, My Birthday Party Takes a Dark Turn. And this is the overview for chapter 20. The summer goes by and Annabeth and Percy are on awkward terms. As Percy heads home, he learns the rest of Annabeth's prophecy. It is 15th birthday and things are going well. Paul wants to propose, they're enjoying themselves, and then his dad arrives. Poseidon plays favourites and lets Percy know that the worst is yet to come. Our strange little family play more games before Percy retires for a brief moment. Thinking about all the girls in his life, oh god, I hated that so much, he's distracted by Nico, who has some ideas about how to beat Luke. The end. And that's the overview for chapter Twenty. So, kind of a bit happens in this, but of course I have my, I have my opinions. So we're going to start first with characters, but uh, immediately I'll say the character things kind of slightly tie in with story a little bit. So it's a mixture. It's both characters and story. Although I also have a separate bit to do with story as a whole. But anyway, we'll start with characters slash story. And I'm looking particularly at Annabeth and Percy. I'm really disappointed in the poorly written and developed friendship and relationship between these two. Um, Seaweed Brain podcast is looking, doing a podcast basically all about whether or not Persabeth or Perkabeth, however you want to call it, um, whether or not they are, you know, the best romantic relationship. And <laughs> as I've been diving into the books a little bit more and just seeing their interactions, I don't know if they are. Because they just don't seem to know how to communicate. Like adding in this drama between them one that continues to never be resolved really irritates me because currently it's only like it'd been there in the past the whole thing with Luke but like they were developing it a little bit more and they were diving into it slightly and in this book they just completely forgot all about it they made Percy a bit of an arse about it he didn't really care about Annabeth's feelings with the situation he was just like ah no Luke's evil, Luke's evil you're just being ridiculous blah 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 and not really trying to take into account her feelings um and, you know, like, Annabeth, she is unreasonable in a lot of cases, but she is also someone who has lost a lot of people. And Percy is her best friend. Like, he knows about these things as well, but he just doesn't seem to remember them in this book. But anyway, like the, the, re- the reason why this whole conflict is here at the moment is just to cause friction and romantic tension because Percy's thinking about Rachel. And that's the only reason it is there, is because it's meant to cause drama between the whole Percy Rachel and Annabeth situation, but this book is a whole, this book has just made Annabeth out to be an idiot, like an unreasonable idiot, when she's just you know she's actually just a traumatized and distraught young girl that has seen someone she loved and also who helped raise her is gone, and her best friend pretty much her only best friend we should say like Grover is that but he's more Percy's best friend than he is Annabeth's so to see her only best friend see that person and only see that person as evil and only talks about them in that way it's no wonder she doesn't want to talk about that with him because he's made it clear that he doesn't understand and doesn't want to understand so why would she want to talk about the whole situation and the and the trauma and the devastation about that if she knows that that person won't want to understand or won't respect her in terms of how she's feeling. Like, I know we're in Percy's point of view, but the lack of self-reflection and non-attempts to understand Annabeth kind of annoys me. Like, he talks about this like he won't... he's not pushing on the whole luke Kronos conversation, like every time he wants to talk Kronos, but now whenever he needs to talk about Kronos, he's got to talk about Luke, and Annabeth shuts it down. But he really wants to talk about it. But then he's saying, that, like, he won't push it. And then in the exact same moment, he then pushes her to tears to talk about the prophecy, which, oh, let me get, oh no, I've just put the book away. Bugger. Um... <laughs> What was Annabeth's prophecy? Let's have a look. Prophecy, there we go. Um, Okay, so this was the line. So um, the last one was that she never said, destroy the hero's final breath and lose a love to worse than death. That was the line that she always kept secret. But Percy pushed her to tell that line till she was in tears. And it's revealed that obviously that like, and the whole thing is she sa- she even says, and oh, this is where dumb Percy comes in and annoys me. She says she didn't know who that prophecy was about. Oh, who else nearly died and disappeared? And disappeared to an island that he could have stayed on forever. Oh, that's right. Percy. Who got interested and involved with a new human being. Well, not a new human being, with a new girl that he was then focusing most of his interest on oh that's right it's Percy of course in this case it very clearly is Luke that this situation is about because she has lost him to a fate worse than death he's become Kronos. but she even says like she didn't know who it was about Percy can't figure out because he's a big dumbass but I don't he pushes her to tell him the prophecy till she's crying but then he won't do the same about talking about Luke. Like, if you're willing to push someone to tears on something that honestly isn't the end of the world, the prof- you don't really need to know the prophecy because even then he doesn't figure it out. But in this case, this prophecy does actually tie to the whole Luke thing and then he doesn't push it about anything else. Like, mate, if you've made her cry, keep her... Like, and you clearly don't seem to care that she's crying because you kept pushing push to learn more about the whole Luke situation like if you suddenly only care now when you're about to leave about this information but don't consider to learn anything else because you're like oh but she always shut it down I'm like she was shutting it down at this point she she was telling you to stop and you kept going while she was crying till eventually she told you while I don't approve of you know making someone tell you something Whilst they're crying and almost, in a sense, against her will. If you're, if he's okay to do that, then why wasn't he doing about the Luke situation? Because clearly he doesn't actually care enough to learn about why she's so adamant about Luke. He just wants to complain about the fact that she is, without actually doing the work to look into it. And that's why it's it's frustrating, because we're only seeing Annabeth as being. Unreasonable because we're seeing this all from Percy's point of view, but it's really clear. He doesn't try. And what, like, I just want to put this out as well. While it's not his responsibility, and it shouldn't be fully on him to, you know, find out and fix the situation and do all these sort of things, the fact that he can do it when he feels like it means that he's very perfectly capable of doing it at other points he just doesn't want to. Like and then even when he has figured out what the prophecy is and the fact that like she she loved Luke in a, in a sense and she cared about him he still doesn't try to understand where she's coming from he just kind of shuts her out a little bit and it just it's oh, it really irritates me and I just want to get into that and that's just that dynamic in a sense but just get into the story and kind of half moving on well not really it's kind of still sticking with that the love rival element is just peeing me off now, and it comes back up in this chapter. I don't know, admittedly, I don't know why it annoys me so much, but he only thinks to invite Rachel to his birthday party and not Annabeth, who is currently as well because his birthday is not long after camp ends. and she's staying at the camp for a little longer. So he knows that she's still in New York, and not too far away from him, but. Like, why doesn't he want to invite her? Why doesn't he think about inviting her? Like, <laughs> he's only recently learned the prophecy that she was afraid of and that has devastated her. And he, you know, he clearly can see that she was devastated by it, although, admittedly, although this is Percy, so he probably doesn't understand that she's devastated. But then he just kind of leaves her to it. And then doesn't really think about her after that. Like, he mentions, like, oh, I don't really mention my birthday to my friends at camp because it's always a little while after camp ends. I'm like, well, my has been staying at camp for years. Like, she she doesn't really go back home often. She has an occasion, but, like, she stays at camp a little bit longer. And also, you guys are meant to be friends? Um, mm mm-hmm. I like how they keep calling themselves friends. I don't think they understand what friends means. Like, why would you not think, oh, I'll ask my friends to come to my birthday party? Because Annabeth, like, even during the Titans curse, she was at a boarding school in New York. So she was nearby. It doesn't sound like he's ever... Yeah, from from where, where... how it's said... He's never had his friend from camp come to his birthday party. Grover's the case, doesn't make any sense because Grover travels. He can, you know, he can come along if he wants. He doesn't... Oh, no, Percy's an idiot. That's all I've just come to realise. He's such an idiot. I've come to not enjoy him much as a protagonist because to everything he does, I'm just like, it's just your logic makes no sense to me. <laughs> but, yeah, anyway, yes and like I was saying before yes the responsibility shouldn't be fully on him but he's the one who's he's fine like he's okay in this situation like he's perfectly fine he has a family he has fun he enjoys himself like if they're friends why doesn't he reach out to her and let her know she's not alone and you know invite her to your birthday party and not just think about this you know this random mortal girl that you've known what maybe in total a week you know i'm just saying um just to move on to another part of the story though okay bringing the poseidon element at the final hour for for plot setup is just just what's the point the only thing i'll give this is that it just proves my point for why the gods suck he says while tyson his other son is in the next room that Percy is his favourite. And just remember, for why this is the worst thing, Tyson has super hearing, to the point that he can hear things and mimic what they're saying. He will have been able to hear that his father said that Percy is his favourite. Poseidon sucks. And the fact that Percy doesn't even think about, oh, my other brother is right here, and my dad has just said i'm his favorite that's not very nice just makes me think that percy's just a bit of a knob <laughs> like, like really <laughs> you were so involved in the idea of your parent your godly parent who doesn't care about you whatsoever calling you his favorite that you just don't consider your other brother's feelings or the fact that you know that's just not okay because this guy has a lot of other children even if they're not demigod children right mm-hmm. okay oh god people are gonna hate me for this um percy is a bit selfish and no one seems to recognize this in terms of the fans he is selfish and a little bit self-absorbed which is ironic because his fatal flaw is loyalty to others but he's you know you think loyalty to others is the moment he hears his dad calling him his favourite with his other son in the other room he'd be like well no that's you can't have favourites like Tyson is right here <laughs> but no anyway let's move on before people hate me for that I want to move on to the finale aspect because obviously this is the final part for Battle of the Labyrinth I will admit that this these two chapters and particularly this last chapter does wrap up most if not all of the narrative threads alongside setting up things for for the future the only complaint obviously is the continuous love triangle rubbish um and the father is just elongated here by making annabeth to be emotionally distant and rachel a lifeline that percy wants in his life like bro and this bro was to rick (laughs) you're supposedly setting up a romantic relationship here between annabeth and percy and yet this entire book you've been making annabeth look unreasonable, unkind, and an idiot. Like what? That that makes no logical sense whatsoever. <sighs> Speaking about things that don't make sense, the Poseidon element here is another complaint I have because it just feels like it it's only here for plot, which is honestly is never good. This really what happens here in that he giving Percy the sand dollar and saying, you know, it'll come in handy in future, you'll know when to use it. Would have made more sense for this to happen in the next book, if anything, and the context when we get to that will make sense. So I'll I'll try to remember to bring it up there. Um, I do wish they had told, per- uh, told Paul about Percy being a demigod here. That way, any later, because they're saying that they are going to tell him, but if he already knew now, the which is why he was able to also make Paul have more of a role. Haven't that they tell him what was going on and he helps in the in getting him back into the school, not obviously manipulating the mist because he can't do that, but he helps feed into the the mist by being like, yeah, no, no, I saw Percy was being attacked, so just kind of help it. He can help, give Paul more of a role. Um, but that way, having him know and him being a bit awkward here and also him just trying to get the hang of it later on in the later book will just help it feel a little bit more authentic in that regard if he's just learnt it recently before Percy's birthday. Um and no, I think it would be interesting to kinda of get a little bit of that now. So when Poseidon comes in, Paul Blofus is like I don't like you because well you abandoned Sally and her children. Um but you're a god so I'm just gonna be passive aggressive about it. Or even just have it that he just doesn't care. Have him be a little bit like Percy in that regard. He just doesn't care that the gods are the gods. He's just like oh, I'm just gonna backhand compliment you. Because I can. Um, What I'm trying to say is what Poseidon does. This is the thing. So Poseidon does the exact same thing that I said that Rachel was doing to Annabeth in this book. Deliberately misnaming someone. um, To put them down. Like he calls Paul Blowfish, Paul Blowfish. Um, Which really is what Percy did by accident as well. But I don't know. I I don't like it. I don't like when people do that because it all... Most often than not it is usually deliberate in some way because if you can't remember someone's name you you just ask them you don't say a, a false name it's just it's a very manipulative way that is used quite often to undermine the other person um, to make that person who was doing it seem bigger and better but anyway <laughs> so the only thing that I will give for this finale is that Nico's appearance is the best setup and element of this chapter which is why i half wish we hadn't have said had his goodbye in the previous chapter with percy just have him disappear in that previous chapter like have percy notice that he's gone i can't find him so he doesn't know what happened and then have him turn up here making it a surprise of like oh wait so he... and then the whole thing is that he disappeared from camp to go and try and find and discover information to help percy which is why he's turned up now it's like oh you know i i just picked that i needed to look into something i needed to make sure i knew all that i do now before coming to you with this like that would have been brilliant and it, we would have felt the fact that he disappeared before so at this moment we're like oh nico's here because we find out in the previous chapter that he was going to go look for something and then a chapter later which is probably a couple of days later he's reappeared like i'm sorry no one's gonna find information that quickly if we have him disappear almost immediately after the battle we'd be more aware of it then and when he reappears now have that weight of like oh he has returned he's returned with something that could help percy during the battle um i think it'd just be more interesting like that and it'd feel more impactful um Which is something that I say a lot. There are some things that I always feel like could have... (laughs) There are too many scenes where something could have just been moved to a later point just to feel that impact. But anyway, yeah. I think for a finale, this one isn't too bad. It has its moments where I'm like, why the hell is this here? But as a whole, the Nico element, I think, is what kind of saved this finale for me. Because it feels more... You can feel the setup, but also it feels significant to this book as well. It doesn't just feel like setup, um, which is what the Poseidon element felt like. That felt just like setup for the point of setup. Um, but yeah, I, while I do have lots of complaints about this chapter, I do think uh, these two chapters—I mean, I do think it, it's better than the mo- most of the book. If I'm honest, the finale was the better part of the book because god this this book had way too many problems than i've realized that it did and it could have been so much better improved if there were things that had been changed not even big changes just small little things that actually developed the characters what happened to annabeth's character in this book like i don't recognize her at all this is just insert that meme here it's like I don't know who this girl is um oh what the words? I don't know who this man is um sorry to this yeah I don't know who this girl is sorry to this girl because this is not Annabeth like she has never been to this level unreasonable and cruel it just feels really strange and it's very clear that the only reason it's here is to put in a love triangle rubbish, um, and that's kind of it. That's really it. But like, considering this book is meant to be the setup for romantic, for, for a romantic relationship between Percy and Annabeth, because like they were literally meant to be going on a date at the start of this book, and now they're not even talking. Like. Oh my god, I hate it. I hate it so much. This out of these the five books of this original series, this one is the in my opinion the worst. It's ruined character development, it's ruined character relationships. The whole point of the book was to s- stop and fight in this battle to help put the Cronus army back. The battle lasts 9 pages. <laughs> it's not even half of a chapter. And then nothing else of significance really happened everything's just kind of what this whole book is just a bit of a nightmare for me if i'm honest it just it just feels like so many ideas just thrown out a book and being like yeah that'll do there's just so much happens but none of it means anything the whole pan situation yeah it's good for grover to have a role but like something could have happened in another book or but didn't even i don't know There were just too many things that happened, too much didn't need to happen, and it was just a bit of a mess. But anyway, I want to know what you guys think, so for this week's question of the episode which obviously will go up on our social media, I want to know what did you think of the Battle of the Labyrinth book as a whole. Um, I know that for some reason this is a book that everyone really enjoys, so I'm intrigued to find out what people think of it. But yeah. Because this is the last one, I wanna thank you all for joining me for the finale of the Battle of the Labyrinth. Be sure to join me next Wednesday as we continue our Odinverse journey. That's a plug where you can find our podcast. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Audio Boom, Stitcher, Deezer, and pretty much anywhere where you can find podcasts. <laughs> um, in the meantime between episodes you can find the Best Down Camp on various social media, at Best Down Camp Pod on Instagram and Twitter. If you want to email me with your own thoughts, you can email the hotmail.com and I will read it out at the end of the show. If you want to support me making this content, check me out on Patreon at a healthy dose of Fran. Want to know more about my upcoming writing and stories? Drop me a follow at a dose of Fran on Instagram, Twitter and TikTok. Again, thank you guys for tuning in. As always, I've been Fran, your very own Hunter. And I will see slash speak to you guys next time. So long, my friends. So long.